0: Welcome to episode twenty-four of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Russ here with Mike. That's me. I'm Mike. In very hot. <laughs> Japan. And that's all I've got to
1: say today because it's hot. It's too hot for hot, me to move yeah. my mouth.
0: It's really hot. I waited <laughs> it until it cooled down to grill some steaks, and then when I you was eat a about lot of to... steaks. I do. <laughs>
1: I just want to say that pretty much I had every salmon week. tonight. It was delicious.
0: And uh, when I was mm. about to thrust the uh temperature probe into the steak just to check it i thought well let me just see what the air is i thought it's cooled down a lot and it was uh still 33 degrees centigrade that's about what 95 94 so that was cool right and so it's been getting up right. to 95 to 97 that's about uh this is a yeah.
1: uh, fahrenheit folks yeah, i know we have a wide audience 35 35 to, yeah to 37
0: it was been 37 most days this week so um,
1: but I think we need to cater to our American audience because they're our biggest uh, audience at the moment aren't they
0: yeah American yeah. audience is uh, uh. is uh, expanded uh, especially after our Gil Rose interview we got some uh, Massachusetts numbers up really high which is nice because we had not had a lot of listeners there and yeah. uh, so I hope those uh, listeners keep listening and yeah um, this week, uh, we've got a spike in our Swedish listeners. I think that's. But, is that why? Because of uh, the uh, Runitsky? From Vernitsky, I'm sure. Yes. Our interview that was released uh, this past Friday with okay. uh, Daniel Bernardson and Marek Stilitz uh, uh, about the forgotten, but now remembered, composer Ronitsky and the new releases on Naxos, uh, Volumes 1 uh, we talked about on the podcast earlier, and volume 2 that's just released this week. So if you haven't checked that out, uh, get your music history lesson and uh, listen to the conductor and the music scholar who's uh, searched for all these scores and knows everything about our uh, a contemporary of Mozart and Haydn, and uh, who is now being rediscovered and performed and recorded. And if you haven't heard the music, it's very exciting, wonderful. We'll be covering volume two, uh, which I've listened to some of, and it's uh, really interesting and exciting. And that'll be coming up uh, in an episode soon.
1: I've already got it downloaded. I haven't heard any of it yet, but uh, Uh, looking forward to it, especially after the interview, because now I've got more insight into who this uh, composer is.
2: Yeah, yeah uh, courtesy
1: th- of Daniel Bernardson. He's yes. really uh, informative in that interview.
0: Yeah, so uh, hopefully we'll pick up uh, some listeners in uh, Sweden. And uh, we've still got our Japan base. And India is a strong number three on Ghana. And uh, actually, we hit, uh, what, uh, 2,100 downho- downloads. And, but yeah, uh, this gone, week we this have week. Uh, 2,100
1: yeah. downloads. We broke the 2,000 barrier early. And we were already up to... Uh, is it twenty one hundred already? Yes, twenty one hundred. Yeah, so we got over a hundred this week. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100 yeah we something.
1: did. Wow, because yeah. earlier in the week we hit two thousand. Yeah, so yeah, we're gonna hit three thousand like good. in a week or so. It's amazing. Yeah, or maybe not. <laughs> someday, someday. We'll have those. We need more interviews to get those. I think that seem to generate numbers.
0: Yeah, we'll get some more interviews in the fall, something jazzy again, and then some more classical things. Uh, What we really need to do, though, is uh, get some more uh, responses from our listening audience. So before we get going with this week's selections, uh, all of our listeners, uh, you'll see in the episode description, we've got uh, links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we're going to talk about. And also on the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's where you can get all the music in one place, one list on Deezer, our preferred streaming app. Excellent uh, CD quality sound and a nice catalog of classical jazz and almost every other uh, genre you can think of. And you can also listen to the podcast there, because now they have uh, podcasts in most countries there. And our username there is Adult Music Podcast. If you can't see the full description uh, or list of all the links on whatever app or uh, platform you're listening to, uh, then come on over to our host, Podbean, where everything is uh, easy to see and you can follow all the links to the music and other information. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Uh, If you take a second to give us a ranking or a few minutes to write a review, that's going to help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations and help us fight against all of the uh, K-pop, BTS-centered podcasts, which seem to be uh, clogging up uh, all of the music commentary category. Uh, And uh, we'd like to uh, rise up in there so more people can discover us. And grow our audience. Uh, if you got something else directly that you want to contact us about or send us any direct comments, feedbacks, uh, please do contact us by email. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com.
1: Yeah if you do that, you never know what'll happen next.
0: You never know. We'll either ignore you or write back to you, depending or on how Or we'll maybe we'll interview you, you yeah. and you'll become what uh, you?
1: yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what happened with uh, Daniel, actually. That's he, what happened with Daniel. He contacted yeah. us and we put him on the air.
0: We put him on the air and he brought America along, which was great. So
1: Yeah. How about that? Right. Yeah, and we learned a lot about Renitzky, which was fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's been quite a year. It's
1: only half done, half a year. Still be more amazing. Yeah,
0: that's right. Next week will be the twenty-fifth episode uh, anniversary. Actually, our top downloaded episode so far is the tenth episode anniversary because it has bourbon shots in the title. Uh,
1: Maybe we should just put like liquor on the liquor. uh, in the, uh, in the, in <laughs> the, uh, maybe we should just talk about booze from now on. We should, and <laughs> you that, know the, that seems to draw the listeners.
0: Number two that keeps getting d- more downloads every day is French Me Baby.
1: French Me Baby. We're going to be coming up with it. We're going to have another yeah. old French uh, podcast. I don't know uh, if old it's French the, classical music podcast very soon.
0: Maybe we need I more titles using the imperative or something. Uh, it just gets people, you know, an exclamation in. point. Yeah, with an exclamation we, point yeah
1: didn't we do that last week and it was okay I mean we got a few yeah. downloads there but we'll see I
0: don't know I don't, know. I, don't I, I don't want to think the titles have more to do with the uh downloads than the actual content but mm. you never know marketing is important so we'll work so, on that
1: speaking of alcohol I've got the uh summer drinks here I mean, I'm gonna go until my birthday on September 24th I tend to drink for the cold beverages and then I go back to the uh harder warmer beverages for the uh, oh. winter so tonight's um beverage of choice choice is um of choice. wow how about that beverage of choice is a nice duvel beer from that's belgium nice. and i've even got it in the special duvel glass i uh oh
0: that's important when you have that that one. is
1: what, here here it is i can show it to you anyway i got the oh yeah. duvel glass yeah
0: that looks good right.
1: I, I remember being in france and um i was like delighted and amazed that well, these different beers that you get mm. in, and I guess this is true in Belgium as well, um, come in their own individual special glass. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that just kind of, <laughs> I just, I just really love that somehow. So I've got a little collection That's of beer good. glasses here. I, I had a Spanish,
0: one. one of my favorite Spanish reds, the Breja uh, Dorada, with mm. my steak, and now I've moved on to the official adult music. Yeah. Podcast beverage, the Knob Creek. Um, yeah, single barrel. Single barrel, yes. Yeah,
1: I'm off that for the summer. I'll be back oh. in autumn, definitely. Okay. It'll be a nice birthday shot, and then we'll go go from there.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to that.
1: Yep. Okay. All right, there he goes with the Knob uh, Creek. Got to get Nob that Creek. break oh. there. All right, off to the music. Here we go. Classical music first. And this week, our first choice out of the uh, gate is the next release in the Haydn 2032 project uh, number 10 called Les heures du jour, which means uh, the hours of the day. Um, It really should be, um, yeah, I guess it is the hours of the day. All right, and this (laughs) is um, part of the Haydn 2032 project by Giovanni Antonini, and in this case, Il Giardino Armonico. Now, the uh, project has featured, I believe, three different ensembles, all conducted by Antonini, so it's really his project, but he's sticking with uh, his main group, um, Giardino Armonico, recently, and this is on Alpha Records. Now, we actually did... The reason I wanted to do this, first of all, I liked the program, but second of all, I really wanted to check this out, because when number nine came out, I thought that the uh, those particular Haydn scores were really hard-driven. They were very aggressive... It was almost a sadomasochistic listen, you know, because it just felt like those those works who were just being beaten they're, to death.
0: They were uh, driving the ahead on that. Yeah, they are yeah.
1: driving hard, like, uh, you know, kind of a horse in a sleet storm, you know, is just yeah. being pushed <laughs> or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I am delighted to say that um, volume 10 here, Les du jour, um, calms down a bit. I mean, this is kind of more of what we expect from this series and from uh, Il Giardino Armonico. Now, I would very much like to to think that uh, Mr. Antonini listened to the adult music podcast and said, hmm, maybe I did drive those pieces a little hard. I'm going to back off a little bit. But then I checked the uh, recording date, and th- this was recorded in 2019, so uh, oh. long before we even had the idea for the podcast. So, we had no influence on this recording oh. whatsoever. They kind of adjusted themselves, and they probably wanted that aggressive uh, sound for those particular um, recordings. I don't know why. Anyway, um, this particular recording has um, three Haydn symphonies, numbers 6, 7, and 8. Now, you got to remember, uh, um, Haydn's symphonies number up to 104 right wow. he was uh, composing like one a week i guess for the esterhazy family in austria when he was employed by them and these were among the first works he he uh, composed for them because they were composed around the year 1761 possibly earlier but i think they were they they had to have been performed there and the three symphonies number 6 is called uh, le matin the uh, morning um number 7 is le midi the afternoon you know, why why the French titles when he's working for an Austrian mm. court? I kinda don't know. Must have been the end thing really. I mean, yeah, it could have been. France was French was the uh universal political language, so I guess um yeah, before English took over, right. I guess, after the war, World War Two. But um and then symphony number no. eight is uh Le Soir, which is the evening. All right, and then we end with uh Mozart's uh, serenata noturna, okay. Nighttime serenade, okay? Mm -hmm. Serenade, by the way, literally means like evening music. So this piece's name really is nocturnal evening music. So I guess it's for when the sun finally is completely down and it's nighttime. Does anyone, by the way, know what the opposite of a serenata is? A serenade? It's morning music. It's an albade or alborada in Spanish. Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah. Um... I'll, oh, I forget in Italian I don't remember but anyway there is such a thing as a morning piece too the one to, that you go onto your your lady's balcony and kind of play your mandolin and get flower pots thrown at you in the morning I do that all waking everybody yeah, up, take you know. my mandolin
0: out on the balcony yeah
1: I guess somebody must have thought it was romantic <laughs> I mean you had to make like a total fool of yourself back in those days I guess you still do really but just in different ways <laughs> alright anyway okay all I really have to say about these is um Okay. So, the first one, Le Matin, starts with this um, kind of imitation of a sunrise. You get the instruments, the string instruments coming in gradually, sort of like this, with this building sort of momentum, sort of like a, a sunrise in sound. And then it goes into a classical melody from there. The melodies are, f- I wouldn't call them relaxed. They're sharply outlined, but they're not driven. Uh mm-hmm. There's a lot of detail. This is very much, this is also a period instruments recording. And there's a kind of roughness to the whole sound. Those, uh, gut strings that they use kind of sort of saturate the entire kind of frequency range that, um, that, uh, that you're hearing. Um, and I really enjoy that because the, the the roughness kind of makes me feel like it's a little like a uh, rock and roll or something, you know, it's kind of, there's something like kind of scratchy or, uh, you know not, uh, not terribly the shiny the it on
0: the amp a little bit. There.
1: Yeah. Well, no distortion though, but there is, there is a lot of, a kind of like, uh, a roughness to it. And I really like that. Also, we have the, um, those, those wonderful, um, brass instruments from the times that kind of sound like, uh like, uh, you're on a turkey hunt sort of thing. Yeah, plumbing. Except that they're expertly played here. It's really yeah, nice. Are. Yeah. And these, um, reed instruments, you know, that just sound a lot different than today's. Um, yeah, this, um, this, this ensemble, again, they, they're mainly concerned with the rhythm. So there's kind of like that sprung Italian rhythm to all three of these symphonies. And, um, I liked... Also, what can, what can I say about this? Um, th- th- their sense of melody too. The way the, they're, they're, we're going to be talking a lot about melody today, I think, because. Uh we have, um, this ensemble are exceptionally good at just sort of outlining, shaping melodies. It's almost like, they kind of think of it as like, you almost kind of feel like it's kind of clay and they're molding it as they play it. And uh, it just comes out as really um, original sounding. You know, it doesn't really sound like any other performance. And I would say that's true of all the, of this entire set. Okay. Metamidi um, and Le Soir. Okay. The last piece um, by Mozart is pretty famous. And um, I had to remark on this. They kind of come up with a... Um, there's, there's sort of a, a uniformity to the um, beginning of this. They don't really make it sound as like a march. Like the beginning almost sound, is like in a march sort of rhythm. Um, okay. And um, they kind of even it out somehow. So that it kind of... The, the melody really comes through more and it just feels really appealing. Like the, um, the, the percussion, the, um, what, I mean, I'm not coming up with words tonight. I don't know what's happening here. Uh, it d- doesn't really overpower the listener. They're, they're sort of subtly done. Um, it's a very melodic performance of this work, which is great for Mozart. Um, this is probably one of my favorite recordings of the Serenata Notturna. I really like it in this uh, instrumentation, these period instruments. So I would definitely give this a listen. And I want to say the Haydn twenty thirty two project is back on track, if it ever wasn't. um, The uh, that that uh, uh, volume nine was a little uh, getting a little into the. Uh, you're <laughs> off, off track there, but no. This is this is really a beautiful record. Really enjoyable, um, and and kind of exciting too, because of the uh, novelty of the uh, period instrument sound,
0: and the the you know the wonderful melodies.
1: So there you go. That's what I have to say. Give it a listen.
0: Yeah, I like this. I like nine too. I mean, it did sound a bit you know amped up. Like, yeah, you know, they might have had some, uh, they might have been amphetam- coked out with amphetamines or something in the system when they did that. But here, yeah. uh, I wrote uh, spirited but not too fast performances. Uh, you know, things yeah, are going along, about but it. doesn't uh, get out of hand. And uh, Antonini gets a lot of uh, dynamic contrasts. And uh, yeah, that's right.
1: F- he does. I feel yeah. like
0: he knows these pieces well and he really highlights the unexpected turns in the compositions. So it feels very fresh as, yeah. you know, as a Haydn to me, it's like he was bringing out the, you know, where the little twists are. He's really right. ready to build those up. Uh, and Haydn and,
1: was a bit of a practical joker
0: harmonically. Yeah. So it's kind of nice yeah. to
1: hear that, you know, and kind of. And so he really sets
0: that. those up and then uh, brings those in with good accents yeah. and, uh, Uh, make sure that you notice them and it's also helped out by the recording uh, Mm. which is very clean and detailed but uh, not in a overly sort of uh, trebly way or something. It's quite rich in the character so these period instruments actually sound really nice uh, Mm. in there. So overall, this is uh, really enjoyable. I I was listening to it mostly in the mornings uh, a lot, but uh, whatever I was uh, doing while I was listening to it, I found myself drawn in when you know those sort of harmonic shifts happened or something dynamic because um, he really seemed to uh, set those up well and caught my attention, even if I wasn't you know paying attention you know through all of them and uh, would come back to it. And I said, wow, this sounds really great uh, yeah. and the balance is really nice. So uh, a really good uh, volume here in this series. I actually listened
1: to these. Uh, I used the uh, Indian Raga approach to <laughs> listen to oh. these because ragas are, ragas are supposed to be, um, you know, played at a certain time of day. They have like, right. you know, so I kind of, I I kind of listened to the the first one when I woke up and then the second one at noon and the third one in the evening. And then the oh. Mozart like later oh. on, it was kind of a, that didn't really aid my, uh, listening or understanding or anything like that but it just broke it up and allowed me to get through the whole recording in a single day it's a very long recording it's an hour and an hour and 20 minutes so pretty much an entire cd's length but uh yeah i really liked it a lot i'll definitely go back to this one i want to say um by the way that number four in this series remains the best one so if you're curious if you want to if you don't necessarily want to hear this one, I would give this a listen though; it's good. But if you want to start with the best one see uh, what they've done, number four, volume four, is the one to hear first. I th- or or I think is the best one. But this one's up there; it's one of the better ones. Um, give it a listen; I like it a lot. Okay, onward to a name that um, a new a new pianist. Her first recording. Her name is Elena Fischer-Dieskau. Now, if you are suddenly perked up at hearing that name, um, you're probably curious about that uh, very famous um, family name. Um, Elena Fischer-Dieskau, of course, um, the great baritone. It reminds us of the great baritone Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau, the great 20th century German baritone. And um, if you made that connection, you are correct to do so because Elena is his granddaughter, Okay, and she's a pianist. She is. She's not a singer. She's a pianist, and uh, quite. I have to say, quite a good one. Um, this is her first uh, recording on the Delphian label, which is based in Scotland, of all places. Wow. She is. Um. She is on the uh, staff at the St Mary's. Um. Um. I don't know what the actual name of the school is. I should probably look this up. Um. St Mary's in Scotland. It's. Uh, she's on the. Um. The music staff there, uh, Saint Mary's Music School. Okay, so that's where she teaches. We have a um, really striking uh, cover photo of her with her highly sculpted eyelashes, looking directly into the camera. Camera. She's got that uh, featured discount dimple on her chin there. Um. Anyway, very striking. This this um cover image kind of reminds me of the the
0: 1920s somehow. Kind it of. She um, looks. So. Yeah. She looks rather stern in this uh, picture.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is her first recital, and it is—it's a pretty interesting program. Familiar works we hear: um, Brahms's Seven Fantasies, Opus 116; uh, Schumann's Kreisleriana, Opus 16; and Brahms's Two Rhapsodies, Opus 79. Now, what's interesting about them is let's think about this. These are all works that uh, Clara Wieck who was later named Clara Schumann, she married Robert, um, saw in manuscript before they were actually became the famous works that they were. And um, she was you know she was married to Robert Schumann. She was really great friends with Johannes Brahms. And she was also one of the great pianists of the 19th century. So she would have uh, read all of these in um, manuscript. And that's sort of a key about how to listen to this recording. Um, Elena Fischer-Dieskow sort of these are all very fresh sounding performances. And I got the impression that she kind of took on this sort of uh, Clara Schumann alter ego and sort of approached these works as though she was seeing them for the first time like her, um, you know, that these these composers had uh, given them to her to look at before they released them to get her um, okay on them, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. um, her her sort of seal of approval. And uh, they sound... there's really a lot to say about this and I'm not going to say it all because it's just so much but anyway, let's just kind of talk about this. The first works we hear are the Seven Fantasies by Brahms the first one is a pretty well-known Capriccio and um, I often think about this one as galloping uh, when I hear that rhythm, but this one doesn't gallop um, like it usually does in other pianists hands. Uh, She goes for a more dramatic effect in her attention to line and rhythmic subtleties and that's going to be kind of a key to this entire recording. Um, the second work is pensive. She pulls out all the sections. This is a, a pretty amazing. The second one, this it's an intermezzo. And I had heard this before, but she has this way of um, slightly pausing before like a new section of music with a whole different tonal color and sort of a rhythmic uh, profile starts. And it kind of made me realize how complicated this work really is. Cause it just, I just, in the past, I just used to hear it just kind of pass by as like a single relatively short work. It's about four minutes long, but th- there's a lot in it. And, um, she really makes you hear all of it. I was pretty impressed by that. So I'm really being hooked in by this recording at this point. Um, I want to say something about, um, her grandfather Dietrich's, um, um approach to music. he, made some indelible recordings of the German leader, and he was absolutely hypnotic as a singer. Obviously, high attention to melody, but he uh, he had this really special way, and I'm wondering if we're seeing a little bit of that here. Uh, Elena Fischer-Dieskow is able to um, sort of um, just pull out a lot of the complexity of this music and make you hear it and make you understand it as well. You, maybe not you know, that you're going to talk about it intellectually, but... Um, just understand that there's something kind of complex um happening here i didn't i didn't realize how much this uh second uh work in this uh, uh the second fantasy the intermezzo changed as it went on there's something else about i should probably say this overall about the recording the two um the there are two the seven fantasies and the two rhapsodies are kind of like uh the bread in this sandwich and the schumann is the like the meat okay sort of in the middle now the um the Brahms works are sort of recorded differently than the Schumann, and they're also played differently. It's hard to say whether it's the pianist's sound or the engineer who's uh, causing it. It's probably a combination of both. But the um, the Brahms works, and you, you'll notice this right away in the Seven Fantasies, kind of sound, make the piano sound like it's... Well, you know, I want to say that like it doesn't have hammers, like it's just like the sound just kind of like comes out of the instruments. Now, of course, if you listen, you can hear the hammers hitting the strings, but the sound just kind of emerges almost like you're not really hitting, hearing the attack so much. And I think this is partly her playing, but I think it's a lot of it that has to do with the the microphone placement. It seems yeah, to I've be placed.
0: Some- I've got yeah, some comments f- about that, yeah. but I'll wait till the musical. It seemed to be pretty far
1: away from the instrument. Okay. <laughs> Nevertheless, though the uh, the textures are pretty clear, you can kind of hear everything she's doing. Um. Okay. Uh. Now this kind of makes me think that she might be a really interesting Debussy, uh, pianist because it was said that Debussy played the, the piano like it didn't have hammers, like he was able to kind of get this almost magical sound out of it. Um she has a very soft attack on these and um I think I think she's being helped by the engineer here to get that sound. Okay and we hear a lot more of that in the the rest of these works. Um She's also got, I said here, a chamber music-sized sound, and I'm kind of wondering if this is her sound. Now, it says here that she's played the uh, second Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto as well, so I'm imagining she has this big hole-filling sound as well if she wants to conjure that up, but she's able to kind of make the sound sound intimate here. All right, next we get to the uh, Schumann, and again, this is a very different-sounding piece. Um, The... um, not, but it's also differently recorded. In this case, the uh, microphone sounds closer, and we can hear the hammers on the strings a bit. We can hear the attack more clearly, and the uh, the sound is more focused. So these, I, I looked up the uh, recording information, and it said it was recorded uh, over two days in the year 2020. Um, so they they must have planned this out ahead of time. It, it's not two separate recording sessions, could, although one could be one day and the other and the other. But this one has a completely different sound to it. I'll say, off just right up front, that I'm really generally, generally not a big fan of Schumann's um, solo piano music. I mean, I like the Fantasy um, and, and these the bigger works, but works like this, uh, Chrysleriana, which are a load of um, short movements that just kind of go by, and then it's on to the next thing and the next thing. And now it's all connected, like, structurally in some way. But it kind of, don't know, I was never really a big fan of them because I can never really latch on to what's happening. But her playing is actually so compelling that I was actually sort of riveted listening to this. I think I enjoyed these works for the first time ever. Um, so, And that says a lot for the, uh, the pianist. Okay, so um, I think this is the... Um, I'm not going to say the best recorder of Chrysler ever. Certainly some of the best pianists who have ever lived have recorded it. But this is the one that made me uh, pay attention to these uh, these works. I really enjoyed this a lot. Okay, the two uh, Rhapsodies by Brahms, that, and I know these really well, and then we go back to the old sound, the more foggy sort of um, misty attack kind of sound. She um, kind of is rhythmically subtle in this. Um, the... Uh, Oh boy. it's hard to explain what she does here. It's it's not quite as um lively, and but the thing is it's it's really compelling nevertheless. The the opening of the um the the first rhapsody is is usually very um kind of like passionate and sort of um you, you know, um and, and loud, but she kind of softens it a bit and kind of makes a lot of it more uniform sounding as melodic line she pays a lot of attention to melodic line and shapes all melodic lines beautifully she's obviously thought about these uh, lines a lot and paid a lot of attention to it so i guess in a way she has that in common with uh giovanni Antonini from the haydn recording this really has been a melody fest for me this week you know i feel like i'm in good hands with people who are able to put melodies out anyway What I want to say about this recording is that this is a a pianist that I'm very interested in now and I'm going to want to hear more from her. I'm very curious about how she's going to approach a few things. I thought the uh, recording was... I'm really curious to hear what Russ is going to say about this recording because the two Brahms works were very definitely recorded differently than the Schumann. And um, another thing about the... I noticed this most in the Schumann, but then listening to the Brahms again, I realized this. The um, microphones were probably placed behind the pianist because we're getting the... um, the bass in the left ear and the treble in the right ear, which is kind of how the pianist would hear it, but it's not how you, the audience, would hear it. So I guess you're kind of sitting in the piano seat playing when you're listening to these. But anyway, aside from that, I thought this was really quite a discovery. I think you should give these a listen. They're pretty interesting.
0: I I enjoyed her uh, performance and playing. Uh, Mm. I thought the Brahms Fantasies are played very uh, beautifully and passionately. Um, but her sense of touch comes through them and she never goes into like uh, playing them overly sentimental, yeah. uh, which, you know, this is very kind of passionate music, um, but uh, she doesn't overdo uh, the emotional touches, um, but her physical touch on the keyboard is quite nice. And you get a sense of, uh, you know, her style with that. So I like uh, her performance there. The Schumann, uh, i enjoyed too as you say i think it's a lighter disconnectedness in the work you know as far as the composition style and a little bit more playful um, but uh, she handles all the passages and the fast especially the fast ones with you know expert technique um, the recording i don't care for the recording sound on any you know, there is a difference as you mentioned between the Brahms and, and the Schumann. I don't like any of the recording sounds. Um, the room sound, and I don't know if it's a phase or echo or something from wherever the mics are. Here, I felt like I was losing a lot of the clarity in what she was playing in the Schumann, uh, in in uh, the recording there, which I thought was too bad because her technique seems to be so nice. And then I also, but I also like the uh, Rhapsodies. Uh, she brings out the contrasts in the sections and, you know, these build up uh, to some, you know, kind of uh, uh, dynamic and also emotional peaks. She always leaves room for that. So I felt like she really had a nice map of the scope of the compositions and she left room, you know, at the beginning to where she mm-hmm. was going to go. But yeah, the thing <laughs> I didn't like, is nothing to do with, uh, you know, her playing, which I thought was fabulous. But I don't know what they were thinking on the recording. Uh, To me, it sounded like in the the Brahms pieces, they tried to get the microphones as far away from the piano as possible. (laughs) You know, almost that other room kind of thing. I felt like, you know, the mic was like way in the back. It felt so distant, uh, which was a shame because I felt that a lot of the subtleties in her playing were not picked up. Uh, very well in the Brahms pieces and then whatever the room effect in the Schumann that was going on it, it was just s- sort of like a, a strange bouncing of the sounds. so um, you know once in a while I'll hear a recording where I think oh this sounds you know like it's so close mic'd that it's stifling but mm-hmm. this was the complete opposite of that and um, <clears throat> they got a room sound and or a, a very distant kind of sound that uh, just kept you know, making me feel like I bought the cheap seats in the auditorium or something <laughs> where I was behind a pillar or something like that. So, oh, behind a pillar, um, you still hear behind a pillar though, you just can't, you could, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, that was the only uh, letdown, but uh, yeah, as far as her performances, yeah, I thought they were compelling and it would be nice to hear her do a uh, Debussy or something like that that relies more on uh, subtle touch because she seems to have that uh, aspect of her playing as a really intriguing feature. Yeah.
1: She's got a high level of musical intelligence to her. Not so surprising considering her rather right. famous last name. I think the entire family is, is pretty musical. I think um Yeah. I was thinking about what you're saying about the microphones being placed far away. That was kind of my whole issue with the uh the Stephen Huff uh recording that we looked at way back in episode 1 right, right you with know, yeah. the microphone was like kind of like it sounded like it was in a few rooms away <laughs> it yeah. was really far yes yeah. but uh yeah I, i'm i'm really interested in hearing more from her and um yeah, this what's the label delphian delphian they're scottish
2: mm.
1: you remember Sheba, y recording the guitar player now he's on pentatone so i think uh this is probably going to eventually happen to her she probably ma- has a contract with them to make a few more albums and she'll probably move on but yeah. uh, Delphine releases a lot of good stuff. I don't know. Maybe the... Uh, Shonjibe always sounded good on them, though. He
0: had good recordings. Yeah. Is this... Where is this record? Is there any information on the uh, venue? Is it a... It's in is Scotland. It a, um is it a church, no, or is it a... I
1: can let you know. Yeah. I'm it's pretty a, sure just it's just strange it dates.
0: Strange-sounding acoustics.
2: Yeah. I, wonder
1: how, I, I should have looked up her age, too. She looks very young, but she's she's on the staff at a music school already everyone so looks be, young uh, to me
0: these days yeah,
1: i guess yeah <laughs> even you look
0: young you No, know, me do you have well, those I, <laughs> I i have good jeans <laughs> oh you must have the and my, and my have,
1: pants are good too
0: must have some instagram <laughs> filters on your forehead yeah. there
1: it was recorded in the queen's hall edinburgh oh, in scotland in the queen's hall i don't know what the queen's hall is like whatever it's a, probably a big room i would
0: imagine i imagine hmm.
1: G- probably a it, concert hall Empty. Get those, get those microphones <laughs> figured out for you guys. <laughs> the thing about recording in a concert hall though is um I, I've w i have worked as an engineer like back in the day. Um concert halls are engineered to sound good when they're full. So um That's true. You want a full house. And this is part of the reason why in New York they would um, give away um free tickets to say music students like an hour before the concert because they wanted all the seats full because first of all the hall sounds better because all these bodies are absorbing the sound and second of all the performers perform better when they see a full house if you see empty seats all over the place you're just not really that inspired yeah so there's uh there's that as well okay but when you're recording in an empty um Concert hall, it's it's well not only well she plays ex- exceptionally well here, but you're not you're going to get a big echoey sort of sound, right. and you really have to work with the microphones a lot in order to get some kind of a, a, a good sound happening. Now, if you're recording um, a live concert, you have the the uh, other problem where you're getting this great sound, but some idiot's going to cough and ruin your recording. Yeah, so
0: it just never works. Someone's you just got can't the, win. someone's got the the bug in there. Coughing yeah. up
1: the phlegm. They they like to cough at classical music concerts. I don't understand. I never hear people coughing in jazz concerts or anything like that. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Maybe they just don't like the quietness or the intimacy.
0: It's you hear the bottles risk. clinking in in the
1: bottles clanking, but yeah. I think that's part of the that's all right. appeal, I think. You know? All right. The last classical uh, recording of the night is a duo by the um, American composer Caroline Shaw. Now, she's sort of uh, very much an up-and-coming composer, very, very popular. Um, She writes in these really different styles. She first came to my attention with um, an album that came out, I believe, in 2019, but it was a short while ago. It was called uh, Orange, and it was recorded by the Ataka Quartet, um, so they were all works for strings, for string quartet in, you know, chamber works. And it was pretty intriguing. They were fairly simple works, but they had really interesting ideas behind them. And, um, it got a lot of really good reviews and, um, I rather enjoyed it too. And I was very interested to hear what she was going to do next. Well, this year she's released so far two albums, both with, uh, the soul percussion ensemble. Now, the first one of these... Uh, came out in January. I, I've combined these together. I was <laughs> the first one came out in January. Narrow C. It was called Narrow C. And um, I heard this way back then, and uh, didn't want to talk about it because I didn't really think much of it. Okay, but. And she, she's, I'm gonna, we'll talk about it in a minute though. But th- there's a new one out now called, um, Let the Soil Play Its Simple Part. So I said, okay, well, I'm gonna listen to this one, I'm gonna program it. We're gonna talk about this with Russ and see if I can find something to like about this. <laughs> I don't think Russ is gonna help me too much. Okay, Uh-oh. let me say, <laughs> let me say, first of all, of the two, I liked Let the Soil Play Its Simple Part. Better, okay. Now let me um let me let's go back to Narrow C. Narrow C is a work that was written in two thousand seventeen, and um, it's coupled with a work called Taxidermy, and uh, the Soul Percussion Ensemble plays on that one too. Narrow C has a vocal part sung by Dawn Upshaw, uh, and Gilbert Kalish, her longtime um, chamber music partner or accompanist partner, is playing the uh, piano part in this, and then the Soul Percussion Ensemble is also on it. Okay, now, this piece, Narrow Sea, written in 2017, um, is com- combines her ex- Caroline Shaw's explorations of folk song and hymnody with percussion, like ceramic bowls, humming, a piano played like a dulcimer by five people at once, and flower pots. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, oh, that's pretty interesting. I bet we could uh, conjure up some pretty compelling sounds with those instruments. But she just doesn't. This this piece winds up being very very repetitive, especially in the percussion area, and it shouldn't be, you know, because there 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 are all these interesting sounds happening, but the rhythms are very predictable and very uh, sort of um they they're, they're kind of dull really. I wasn't so happy about that. Okay, anyway, the texts for, for this piece and this is gonna this is a big thing with um Caroline Shaw, but on the new album too. Texts are from the Sacred Harp hymnal. And the Sacred Harp Nimble is a collection of shape note hymns first published in the 19th century. Now, shape note, do you know what this is? this I had to look this up. This is pretty interesting. It's a, a bit of uh, American music history, really starting in England, but taken up in America that I knew nothing about. Shape notes are notes that have usually notes have like a round sort of head on them you know over where the pitch is on these staff but shape notes have different shapes they have squares triangles and they're supposed to tell you if the note is sharp or flat to make it easier for like uh an inexperienced musician to sing they would look at the shape of the note and they would know if it's sharp or flat or anything like that it's pretty compelling i knew nothing about this very interesting to me so i'm Pretty compelled. Like this is, yeah, is going to be interesting. Eh, well, it could have been. I don't know. <laughs> all right. Each poem used in this piece contains images of water and joy in looking to heaven. So she's um chosen um uh, hymns from the uh, the sacred harp that all have to do with uh, joy and and water. Okay, looking to heaven. And again, that doesn't really help the piece much either because it kind of feels like a twenty minute long version of a person kind of saying the same thing over and over again um i wrote a lot about shape notes here okay okay now she says that or in the notes the piano serves as a grounding force or familiar memory that keeps reappearing amid the different textures introduced by the percussion ensemble um i didn't get this impression in fact i almost didn't notice the piano was playing sometimes you know just because um it just blended in with the percussion so much. The percussion really wasn't doing all that much that was interesting to me. So when the piano came in, it just sort of blended in. Now the pianist here is Gilbert Kalish, a pianist who I've admired like all my life. He's got to he's got to be really old by now because he played with um, John DeGaetani before he started accompanying Dawn Upshaw, one of these a, a really great soprano with an enormous range, and I think Dawn Upshaw sort of um, was inspired by her. Okay, um, yeah, I wrote all these notes that don't really um <laughs> that I really change my mind about. Okay, and Dawn Upshaw is the singer here. Now, Dawn Upshaw is a singer. I remember she's around my age. First of all. And uh, she was a great art song singer, especially when she first came on the scene when she was in her 20s. I heard her many times in Boston, many uh, memorable recordings I have of her, and I heard her sing many times. All happy memories. Here, though, okay, her voice has darkened as she's gotten older. She's She's got to be around late 50s or 60 by now. She's around my age. I'm 55. Okay, her voice is still instantly recognizable. She's still got that sort of earnestness to her. And she's got she's still got a wide vocal range intact, but she doesn't have this immediate control over it. One of the things that kind of she gives this performance, um most of this um most of the vocal line in this um work is in her middle range. She doesn't really it really is like a, like a hymn, sort of like, like you would sing in church. You're not going to really challenge the, um, the church singers too much. You want them to be singing the, uh, the hymn together. And, uh, these works are written like that, but you've got this great soprano there. Uh, There are times though, in part two, where she has to go up for a really high set of notes and she hits them all, but you can hear the preparation coming from a mile away. Whereas in the past she would have just gone for them and just you know sang them and you would have been amazed um she does hit them which is impressive enough especially given her age you're, you're basically past your prime as a singer as a an opera singer uh when you hit 50 about maybe a little younger than that and your voice is generally blown out by then and you know but um okay so she goes off the highest note um about two minutes into part two if you want to hear it and there's a pause where you sense her preparing for it and uh, that kind of was a little sad for me okay there is though however an impressive low note at the end of part three uh which i wouldn't have thought was in her range but she hits it with a nice uh tone i was pretty impressed by that the percussion uses a lot of water songs but there's not much joy in any of this performance this weirds me out because the texts are all about joy and going to heaven and yet the uh the work itself just seems kind of joyless it seems kind of um pedantic really uh, i don't I don't feel like uh, the composer really added much to the to you know to the hymns i i th- actually i think the hymns would have a lot better in church with uh believers actually singing them i i, I imagine dawn upshaw is a i don't really i don't want to say but <laughs> anyway um but i didn't really get much joy out of this uh performance um i didn't hear much contrast in dawn upshaw's singing from part to part so the whole twenty minutes seems to go on in this sort of gray sort of uh tone um, this may be by design, I can't really say. Um, and that's really it. I didn't really like this piece much. Um, there's also a piece called Taxidermy, written in 2012 for the Percussion Ensemble. And it uses the same sort of instruments, Flower Pots as Percussion. Uh, and it begins a lot like Narrow C, where Narrow Sea left off. You, If you weren't following the tracks, you wouldn't know that Narrow C had ended. And this piece began. Um, there's no voice in this though. Well, there is later, this spoken word, <laughs> which is even worse in a way. <laughs> um, I'll tell you why in a moment. The interest in a piece with as much space as this, this piece has a lot of space. There so a lot of pauses in the percussion and the interest has to be in the various timbres, timbres of the percussion instruments. But again, this didn't hold my interest for long. And this is a 12 minute piece about, is that right? 12 minutes, I guess so. It doesn't say. Okay. Six minutes into the piece, about halfway through, spoken text begins. And it's kind of this repetitive um, speaking by male voices. The pattern of the detail of, and these words get mixed up a few times until it finally settles on. The detail of the pattern is movement. Um, So it's kind of like this arty sort of, um, you know, thing that I would think maybe like one of your friends would come up with in college and you'd, sit through it because you were his friend you know doing his uh graduation project all right now there's expertise in the arrangement this is obviously what shaw, what caroline shaw wanted um the piece peters out at the end i didn't like anything on this recording much also it's only 28 minutes long which is pretty much just as well because it was longer i don't know what i would have done all right now do you want to say something about this before i go to the next one or what this is that? the narrow sea the narrow sea
0: yeah um the whole setting is a bit too like new agey for me um trying to say what i liked about it um i did like some of the melodies in shaw's compositions i think she has a you know a keen talent to write uh, nice melodies and i did enjoy uh upshaw's vocals uh i like the tonality of her voice and uh, character uh i do ma- too
1: but i've heard her like when she was right. younger and i just remember yeah. like how great she was
0: then. Yeah, so you know? not having anything to compare it to i still just yeah. you know liked her uh her unique uh vocal quality what what made it insufferable for me is the percussion really and that's this um not um, there's you know various things on here marimba vibraphone uh, like that uh, that's fine but I don't know what all this like clattering sounds uh, that are sprinkled through here to me it it sounded like uh, like a horror movie of insects or something mm-hmm. and I've I got this feeling like you know giant bugs there's an episode of the X Files <laughs> where this is like these I bugs that are one. hiding under a child's bed and they that this is like scratching. Yeah, I,
1: I think they were supposed to be water sounds. Yeah, but to me, you
0: know, they, th- to the me, the image like in the poem, hmm. like uh, post-apocalyptic. Uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, post-apocalyptic. Uh, apocalyptic, like roaches scrambling over hard surfaces or something. So, that, oh man, I just didn't like that, and I also don't like the synth sounds that are sort of uh, in there. So I, I just don't like the the setting of that, but in you know if i could extract the melodies and the vocals from that but i just found those scratching percussion things a bit uh, yeah too much for for my taste but okay
1: yeah uh, you like the melodies i don't know i didn't like this setting much although i i think it's true to the hymns i don't think they're her melodies i think they're sort of um taken from the uh, oh. the the hymn the hymnal so they're they're in a limited range i thought it was really odd to have like a, a professional soprano singing in such a limited range, it's just kinda weirded me out. You know? It's kinda I wanted because yeah, you want to hear her do a little more. You know, she can actually yeah, sing. Yeah.
0: I'm trying to I'm trying to find <laughs> nice things to say about it, but uh, yeah, yeah. it was short. It's not my thing, yeah. It was short, <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, I get I think that's what it comes down to. It's not my thing. I really don't want to like damn this composer, because I do like her. I did like the orange album a lot, but I was sort of disappointed by this one and eh, not so much about the by the next one i i thought it was good but it's just not my thing um the um recent release now um narrow sea came out in january and it's been out for a like half a year now but uh the most recent album uh by of carolyn shaw compositions with soul percussion accompanying her is called let the soil play its simple part and this was just released um a few weeks ago both of these are on None Such, by the way. I should mention the record labels. Um, is that right? I want to make sure. Yes, yeah. Okay. None such. Yeah. yeah, that is None Such. Okay. Now, this album, if it were a standalone, if we weren't doing. Uh, narrow sea. we probably wouldn't include this on this podcast because it really comes across as more of an uh alternative or indie rock or pop album than mm-hmm. it does a classical album yeah for sure yeah it sounds like songs and the uh, vocalist on this one is uh caroline shaw herself and she's quite a good vocalist she kind of has this yeah. um sort of um very direct l- like her music it's very direct kind of simple and appealing um, and I don't mean simple as an insulting thing. I mean, it as like, a, a quality of the directness that she's able to, um, you know, project. Mm. Okay. Uh, quality. She, a little bit, if you can imagine, uh, Suzanne Vega, if you remember those songs, like, um, I Tom's remember. diner, things yeah. like that. She, she, it's that sort of voice. It's really kind of clean and, you know, direct and not really trying to, uh, can kind of show off or anything like that, but it gets it gets the job done. It's an appealing voice too. I enjoyed listening to it. Okay, all of the songs are sort of um, there's so it's sort of like arty pop, I guess, uh, mm. with sort of um art sounds going on around it from the yeah. percussion, percussion ensemble. Let me go through a little bit of these because there's quite a bit of variety on this album. Um. Um so yeah, she doesn't sing operatically. That's the first thing to understand, like Dawn Upshaw who would be who's, who's an opera singer. Okay, this um album starts with a song called To the Sky, which is from the um the uh the, the beginning the first and the very and the last song on this album are both from the Sacred Harp hymnal. Um so she doesn't write the words to these. Um this is, um, by the composer. And this one has, like, you know, rock and roll drums on it along with the percussion. So, that made me think, oh, this is, like, this could be, like, a club song or sort of some sort of, a like, a rock song. Uh, she actually, I thought she sounded a lot better than Dawn Upshaw did. Not, yeah, you know, she's not as good as a singer. She doesn't have that training, I don't think. But she just, in, in the sense of she understands her music and she knows what she wants right. from it. So, she's able to, like, give it a better, um, sort of, um uh you know performance I think she you know she's able to put across what she wants more effectively I would say um let me see Yeah, lots of indie-style studio production. This really very much does sound like an in-the-studio sort Mm -hmm. of uh, record. Okay, It doesn't sound like a live performance by any means. Okay, the next was Other Song, and uh, she writes the lyrics to this one, too. This is a similar composition to uh, To the Sky. The third piece, Let the Soil Play Its Simple Part, lyrics by Shaw again. There are no drums here, just percussion. I liked the timbres in this piece. Um, Thought it was pretty interesting. A little more lively than we heard on Narrow Sea. The Flood flood is Following Me is the next piece. It combines Shaw's lyrics with words from James Joyce's Ulysses, which she sings. Next comes Lay All Your Love On Me. It's an ABBA song. Uh, Benny Anderson and Bjorn (laughs) Ulvaeus are the uh, songwriters. Now, if you know this song, it was in the Mamma Mia soundtrack. And uh, I don't really remember this one from when I was young. Um, But uh, it's a disco song. It's got this big disco beat on the original song. But that's all stripped away here. Here, it's very spare and understated. I had to go listen to the original song. I didn't remember it from hearing this. I couldn't, like, identify Mm. the melody. Um, Not a big ABBA fan, really. (laughs) I liked Dancing Queen back in the day, but that's about it. It was on the radio every day when I was a kid, so there you go. Okay. Uh, Here, Shaw's voice is accompanied only by the marimba, and uh, she reduces the vocal line to monosyllabic utterances, which is kind of interesting without all the sound production in the ABBA recording um, she only sings the chorus to it she doesn't sing any of the verses uh, in this next is cast the bells in sand the lyrics here by uh, Josh Quillen of the soul percussion ensemble um, the vocal harmonies sound altered and distorted in the mix so here we have some studio trickery going on to make the sound really cool and club-like uh, electronic sounds are used uh percussive ornamentation was pretty cool i thought in this um the solo instrument sounds like a severely distorted shofar which is kind of like the uh it's a ho- it's like a the horn, horn right? yeah, that, the, yeah. it kind of uh, sounded like a distorted horn. version of that okay the chant it was some sort of um middle eastern horn the chanting of the title has a catchy haunting quality okay this kind of really made me feel like i was listening to club music Next, Long Ago We Counted, lyrics by Caroline Shaw. Uh, This one has a similar saturated profile to the previous piece, the whole, you know, saturated by the uh, studio uh, sounds. Distorted, manipulated percussion sounds supported by the highly produced vocals, which Shaw herself sings again. Next comes a gradual dazzle, lyrics by the Canadian poet Anne Carson from a poem in her collection, her collection's called Men in the Off Hours. I like the poem. It was kind of really evocative of uh, the waning of the day. Uh, the setting is spare and highlights the lyric. Good choice here. Next, A Veil A Wave Upon The Waves, a uh, lyric from James Joyce's Ulysses, That's the second time on this album. She must really like this uh, book. Only three lines are used, with the line, all is lost now repeated most often. This work has distorted electronics and drums. It comes across as brooding music supporting chatty singing. So, sort of two different moods at once. Next, some bright morning lyrics by Albert E. Brumley from his hymn "I'll Fly Away." He's a he wrote a lot of hymns. He was a shape note composer. Okay, this elevated composition reminds me of recordings of the music of Hildegard of Bingen that I heard that I've heard because it's got like uh, the lyric. The lyrics are kind of melismatically set there's a lot of like uh, melisma or different tones on the same vowel um, with accompanying drones in the background kind of put me in that uh, middle ages kind of uh, feeling there it's actually pretty inspiring and kind of uplifting the lyric is uh, the second on the album to have a clear theme um, when life is over I'll fly away so that to that home on God's celestial shore. The, all the pieces that Caroline Shaw and everybody else wrote lyrics to don't really have much uh, meaning to them. They're kind of more atmospheric. And she even, the ABBA song had a, a meeting, but she took it away by only including the chorus. You don't really know what it is. It's pretty interesting. Okay, that's how the album ends. Um, with that, um, the... Uh, It was Some Bright Morning by Albert E. Brumley. Now, I want to say, okay, so I liked this a bit, but it's not something I'm really going to go back to uh, very often, I don't think. It's really not my kind of thing. It sounds more like uh, indie rock or something like that or some some sort of um, arty pop music or something um i do like i I just want to say i wanted to hear these because i do like caroline shaw's music uh especially when she composes in a classical vein she has a direct natural way of composing that's very appealing and i can understand why she's so popular especially in america um it comes across on this album her directness and on orange uh, also and um, i guess on um narrow sea too except that i wasn't too interested in um in that record okay i think i find her style generally disarming but um i really didn't like narrow sea much and i thought let the Soul play its simple part really wasn't my thing that's what i have to say about these
0: not my thing either uh on this one of the tunes uh i guess the two that i found most interesting or listenable to me is a other song and the flood is following me yeah, you know, I kind of enjoyed the compositions uh, there. The rest, you know, this arty or club kind of uh, approach to them, yeah, you know, it's not really doesn't really hold my interest much. And uh, yeah, I, I'd be interested to hear. You know, I haven't listened to a lot of her other work, uh, but in this kind of uh, form uh, with this kind of backing and uh, use of the instrumentation didn't really catch my interest very much uh so those two are the only two that really stood out to me as uh you know something that i found a little bit interesting but the rest of them i could give a pass to on uh this uh let the soil plant simple part and yeah and the narrow sea mm. yeah <laughs> not my thing on these yeah
1: I'll keep an ear out for her future releases. Uh, I'm kind of one of the things that uh, this has; these two releases have done is Orange was a set of like works for string quartet, and these two, one of them is just for percussion ensemble and it's sort of classical, and this one's almost like clubby sounding. Now I'm right. wondering who she is you know she's got a lot of different styles and that's impressive she can compose in all these different styles but generally if you're going to be known as, as a composer you're going to be associated with one style you know right I mean you can do like for a composer like say Toto Takamitsu composed in a lot of different styles okay he did um, transcriptions he did film music but when we think of him in classical music we associate him with this sort of really complex almost like modernist sort of um You know, sort of post-war, 20th Mm. century kind of discordant style that he uh, that he that you know that's that's kind of what we identify him with. You know, despite all of his other music. So I'm kind of wondering how we're gonna um, what what her the style she's known for is gonna be at this at the moment after these two releases because I feel like this kind of throws a monkey wrench into that a little bit. Not that that's a bad thing. She's like, you know, people will like her, but, um, I don't know.
0: I'm just, I'll keep listening. We'll keep you informed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the various artists in any genre who can do a lot of different things. Uh, I kind of like it if there's someone, uh, that I happen upon and they, you know, they do some things that I really like and some other things that I don't like, but, they don't do the same thing over and over again. And I find that appealing to you know artists who have that sort of breadth of uh, yeah. expressional things and take some chances. And, you know, if I, you know, maybe I'm just uh, hitting on the side that I'm not really interested in on um, this one, but uh, that's fine too. Uh, you know, I, I like people who take chances and, uh, you know, explore their frontiers. So yeah, nothing wrong with that at all.
1: I think about this. This one. This kind of reminds me of um Toto Takemitsu. He he did a lot of um sort of um transcriptions for guitar. And he did one. I remember hearing. I think John Williams played it, of a uh, Here There and Everywhere, the Beatles song. Oh. And um, it was really beautiful, but it was absolutely unidentifiable as a Takemitsu <laughs> arrangement. It just sounded like something. And it was really expertly done, but there was nothing in it that you would associate with him mm-hmm. you know what I mean it just sounded like a generic sort of um, transcription of this piece that maybe anybody would have made he, he absolutely erased himself from the um, that's interesting from the piece, I th- and it was a little creepy to me, you know, because I think you want to hear the artist, yeah, or the or the composer, you know. This is right. our our whole Western um kind of ego thing, you know, ego. You know, we we sign our work, so you know it's my work, I created yeah. this. And whenever you do that, you when you sign your own work, you kind of want to make it identifiable as yours. Um, within the work, it'll have certain themes that are associated with you because right. it's your commentary on like music or on whatever. And um when he does that it, it feels really weird. We kind of feel our anonymity, I mm-hmm. guess. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, not much of anonymity coming up <laughs>
0: <laughs> in the um in the jazz section. So, on the jazz side uh, this week, did doing a little exploration here. Uh, which I'll delve into as we go along. We're going to start out uh, this time with uh, the saxophonist, uh, Joel Fram, and his uh, new recording called The Bright Side. that's on Anzic Records. Now, Fram is uh, a really in-demand player as a sideman. He's uh, played on over 100 recordings as a sideman, including dates with Brad Meldau, Maynard Ferguson, Betty Carter, Dewey Redmond, Lee Connitz, Pat Martino. It's a big names, right? Uh, Bill Charlap, uh, nice pianist that uh, we're uh, uh, fans of. Uh, mm-hmm. Vocalist uh, Diane Schur, Freddie Cole, and another top vocalist, Jane Monheit. Um, and he's also uh, worked with uh, Matt Wilson, the organist Larry Goldings, and uh, many others. Uh, he's been... Uh, Part of two Grammy-nominated CDs in 2018, uh, Freddie Cole's My Mood Is You and Daphnis Prieto's Back to the Sunset, which won the Grammy for Best Latin Jazz Ensemble Recording. And so here, on this recording, the bright side that was recorded in 2019, but just released now, uh, is his uh, Jazz Trio's debut recording for Anzac Records. This is... uh, Sort of the result of a musical partnership that was worked out through a lot of tours and recordings uh, over the past few decades. And so Fram's main instrument is the tenor sax. Uh, there's uh, one cut with soprano saxophone. And we've got Dan Loomis on bass and Ernesto Servini on drums. And so you'll notice there's no uh, main uh, chordal instrument, no piano or guitar here, which uh, sort of sets the possibilities for uh, what's going to come out on this recording here because that frees him up harmonically a lot. Uh, So we've got all original tunes here. Keeps things fresh and interesting, starting out with tune number one, Blow, Papa Joe. It's a (laughs) nice title. Um, And you get a sense right from the start, Firm has a really... uh, Nice tone. It's it's full, but also flexible. He's got a really strong upper register, which he uh, brings to the forefront in this very modern sounding composition. And so since we've got no guitar or piano, he's got a lot of uh, freedom harmonically. Uh, He's got great tonal control, so he can get an abrasive tone or squawk whenever he wants for effect, uh, and he's not straining at all to do that. Uh, The rhythm is loose in the drumming, but overall in this whole recording, and especially here, uh, he's locked in really perfectly with the beat and in the bass and the drums, and his solo has a lot of uh, complex rhythmic figures. So we're off to kind of an interesting start. Uh, Track two is called Thinking of Benny. This starts with a real funky bass groove, And then uh, Fram comes in with a lighter tone and tongue on this really swinging melody, and uh, his solo is really creative harmonically and rhythmically. it has got some uh, bluesy honks for effect thrown in here, and I really like how uh, he can really adjust his tone to whatever he wants to do and whatever's happening, but he always keeps it swinging. Uh, on this tune There's a nice Extended bass solo By Loomis here Before Fram comes back in And he trades fours With the drums And then uh, Comes back to give us The melody again uh, Track three Is called Boo dip dip hmm. And uh, That is uh, Kind of uh, You know The sound of Part of this tune It's a tune It's based on this Kind of modulating riff That uh, seems to end With a boo dip dip Kind of uh, phrase And And uh, the, the rhythm changes up on a middle section of the melody uh, before the riff section repeats again. So his uh, solo that comes in after that, it follows the rhythmic variations on the sections, and it makes for a nice uh, interesting contrast uh, here. Then he mixes kind of racing lines with funky riffs in his solo, and then after his solo, there's a nice uh, energetic drum solo, and they bring the boo-dip-dip dip over the top of that uh, to sort of punctuate uh, before going back to the melody. So, this is kind of a fun uh, tune here. Number four is a little bit of uh, mysteriousness brought in on Silk Road. And this has a slow, mysterious bass riff that opens up and gets some light drumming accents. Uh, and then Fram comes in, and here he's on the soprano sax. And uh, this tune has a really sparse melody with some interesting harmonic twists. The bass takes the first solo, and he keeps this sort of eastern modal mood here. And then Fram comes back in softly again over the bass. It's a very interesting soprano tone. It's almost flute-like. If he had used flute on this piece, uh, it would have fit perfectly in, because that's the kind of tone that he's pulling out of the soprano here. And he works as solo in here navigating the harmonic twists and he gets up into the upper register on the soprano and then he has some really blistering lines and some double tonguing uh showing off his technique but then he bring it back down to the melody kind of softly for the end the fifth track omer's world uh, this one changes up the mood with a kind of funky rock bass and drums beat and then uh, Fram comes in with a real kind of R&B-ish melody, uh, rhythm and blues coming in here. The beat changes up in a section that's a bit more driving before settling back. And then when Fram comes in with his solo, it goes over to these uh, two changing rhythmic patterns, which makes a nice contrast. And they're really locked in rhythmically here. The clarity of that without having a piano or guitar uh, highlights, you know, sort of the cohesiveness of the Uh, interplay of the musicians. And he ends the solo with this huge funky and uh, bluesy descending line. Uh, Then he comes back in almost right away with the melody. So a very tight kind of funky tune here. Then we see, we've got a French title here. I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Qu'est-ce que c'est, I think that's it. What is this, right? Yeah, what is this? And what is this? Because uh, it's a swinging melody over these... bouncing bass intervals that starts the tune. It's kind of a nice effect. And uh, there's a lot of room for exploration here. And Fram has a lot of ideas going really low and really high on the horn. He's comfortable in all the registers. Comes up with these little melodic riffs at every turn. And he also inserts some bluesy nuggets along the way. And when he finishes his solo, the bass picks up on that last riff to start his own kind of rhythmic and funky solo. And Fram comes back and then trades with uh, the drums uh, before going over the uh, melody again. So it's kind of a nice little swinging one. Track seven is called X Friends. That's just the letter X capitalized. Uh, it's a tension building opening with bass and sax figures that kind of navigate over a fun obstacle course ah, here. They have a little break. There it was what was that oh and, and so I uh,
1: accidentally turned the track on my like, oh, yeah. phone here okay
0: and then uh Fram keeps up the chase on his solo with lots of challenging rhythmic figures and then uh servini takes a drum solo and they bring it back with uh kind of phrases from the melody uh, track eight is uh, called beeline this is a nice melodic swinging melody tune it has some f- kind of uh, intriguing chord changes Fram keeps the ideas flowing on this one. He had some cool harmonic overtones uh, here on the load notes, uh, showing he's got a lot of reed control and uh, mastery over the instrument. Uh, There's a drum solo and some cool bass trades uh, before the easy flowing melody returns. Uh, Number nine is called The Beautiful Mystery, and uh, this starts uh, kind of mysteriously with these really big bass tones. Uh, and chords on the bass uh, that brings it in. a Really interesting effect. And Fram comes in over these uh, washing cymbal tones and the atmospheric bass playing uh, over these rubato, uh, really relaxed phrases. It keeps the sax subtle and Servini adds really delicate textures on the drum set to fill out uh, the mystery on this one. Uh, It stays in the kind of ethereal realm. And then... We've got the title track uh, to end things up called The Bright Side. This is a really uh, happy bass riff that uh, opens up over a, an even drum beat. No swinging here. Uh, but Fram comes in with a very cheerful R&B-like melody. And his solo mixes both modern jazz phrases with some real blues-based licks. Then Loomis comes in with a punctuated kind of bass solo and uh, Fram backs him up with some long phrases. Then we come back to the uh, cheerful melody for a f- couple of rounds, and then Fram has some fun playing around with uh, it at the end uh, before bringing the whole record to a close. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this recording. It's it's easy to see why uh, you would want Fram to be your sideman, because uh, he's a really versatile kind of uh, sound, his tone. He can Adjust to whatever style and uh, mood he wants to create, and he plays in all those styles comfortably. Uh, but here on this recording, he's obviously doing his own thing, and he's got a you know a lot of uh, inspiration and ideas in different styles. And the trio format gives him a lot of freedom, especially uh, harmonically. And he shows off uh, his uh, technical chops well, and his creative ideas, and uh, the sparseness of the instrumentation. Uh, shows that the uh, interplay and the synchronization of this trio is super tight and uh, a very fine player and uh, inspired uh, material and performances.
1: Yeah, there's quite a bit of variety on this album, but I think it errs on the side of... Funky grooves, and uh, he seems to like uh, the funky groove, and I certainly do too. Uh, this kind of kept me going through to the very end. I liked I liked this record a lot. Um, not just not just for the for um Fram's playing, but for his um his um group as well. They they mm-hmm. just they just kept the uh, the grooves coming. I yeah. really and they were pretty uh, creative and catchy, so it just kind of drew me in. I liked this record a lot. I was really surprised by it. I was kind of wasn't really thinking it was gonna Gonna kind of reel me in quite the way it did, but I think this is one I want to hold on to. I like to, it might be my, um, yeah, this I don't know, this might be my favorite record
0: of the week. We'll have to see. Yeah, I like this. Um, I mean, a couple of weeks, two episodes ago, we listened to oh. uh, Happy Destination by Rich Perry, uh, which I liked a lot too. Um, but it's a bit more, uh, out there and, and, uh, maybe modern, but I feel like, um, On this uh, one here with Fram, he's really, he he has a very modern concept and uh, as far as, uh, you know, jazz harmony and compositions, but he also has that uh, kind of rhythm and blues and blues rootedness that uh, he comes back to. So you you get that sort of bass and then insertion even in the other works. Uh, So, you know, he he keeps it earthy and uh, even when he goes out for, you know, a little kind of journey into the modern jazz things he brings back and uh, inserts the funk into everything so uh it's very accessible and uh yeah fine player i i imagine he can play just about uh in any kind of style uh well and show off his personality and he, he has a great control especially as i said uh, his tone uh you know he, he he can do these kind of subtle changes to whatever emotion is uh, called for at, uh, you know, the moment in the tune. And I enjoyed that a lot.
1: Yeah, he's able to uh, – it's it's one thing to do that when you're playing for someone else. It's another thing, one, to have, like, say, your own compositions or your own arrangements and then kind of come up with these ideas, right. like, you know, when you're the boss. Yeah. But uh, he's quite, uh yeah, he's quite uh, creative and resourceful. Yeah, yeah so – Keep an eye
0: out for this. Check it out. A really good player. Uh, he's mm-hmm. been around, and now uh, he's uh, doing his own thing. And uh, I think you'll like what he has to say. Uh, the, the next uh, recording is uh, a collaboration, and that's what intrigued me uh, because mm-hmm. I didn't know any of these players, but they are all well-established in uh, a local scene. And it's a summit of sort, and it's called Altoism. Hmm. uh izm on that on Afar Music. And this uh is a collaboration of Chicago-based or uh Chicago uh, born uh saxophone players Greg Ward, Sherelle Cassidy, and Rajiv Halim. And so it's a summit of sorts by these alto players that uh at least originated originated or uh, came up through the Chicago music scene. And what's kind of unique is, you know, usually these kind of uh, summits, when you get like three players on an instrument uh, coming together, they're a dedication to some, you know, master of the past or something Uh, like the great uh, Bird at 100 on Smoke Sessions from 2019. Uh, And it the monster alto players uh, of our day, Vincent Herring, Bobby Watson and Gary Bartz, also uh, the great uh, uh, Dave Kikoski on piano. It's a great recording, Um, but, you know, this was a tribute to uh, Charlie Parker. So naturally, uh, in those kind of things, you're going to have tunes uh, either composed by or favored uh, by the person being tributed to. And so in this one, uh, we get uh, all original compositions, which is kind of unique. And um, we also get to check out something uh, more regional of these uh, Chicago-based players. Uh, uh, Ward has sort of uh, become a New York kind of player. But uh, like we did uh, back a few episodes ago when we checked out the uh, Jazz Worms with uh, Ron Miles, uh, which is uh, players on the uh, Denver kind of jazz scene, I was kind of intrigued because this is sort of a Chicago-focused album, and I didn't know these players. And so I wanted to check it out, and I'm glad I did. However uh the thing that makes it difficult is i don't know these players well so i've got three of them uh playing and there's very little information about the recording so it's really hard for me to tell like who's playing what uh here (laughs) of course Um, yeah so i did a little research and um All of these players, you know, they're they're all three fine players uh, with their own styles. And listening to their own individual work in live performances on YouTube, I got a sense um, Ward himself uh, has uh, maybe a little bit more of a tart kind of. uh, hard to say, more articulated kind of style that makes it stand out from the others. Um, and sometimes I can pick out his sound more easily after a couple of listens, but uh, I'm still new to these players. Anyway, uh, a little bit on the players themselves. Ward is originally from uh, Peoria, Illinois and, uh, Illinois, and he's spent uh, his years coming up through the Chicago jazz scene. He's also known for his uh, composing talents um, in also jazz and classical uh, Realms, and he's uh, composed for the uh, International Contemporary Ensemble, uh, Chicago Symphony Orchestra's Chamber Music Series, and uh, Peoria Ballet Company, as well as the Jazz Institute of Chicago. So he does some composing work. And if you uh, look at his uh, work of ensembles on uh, recordings on YouTube, you'll see he does uh, some more uh, modern type things on. Uh, with uh, not only strict sort of jazz backgrounds, but uh, some uh, more poppy kind of uh, things, and uh, guitar players, uh, kind of rockish things, too. So he's quite flexible. Uh, On the New York scene, he's played with a lot of players, uh, Lupe Fiasco, uh, Tortoise, William Parker, uh, Andrew D'Angelo, and Mike Reed. Uh, Also on this recording, the other alto player, Rajiv Halim, uh, he's played with uh, Rudresh, Ahanthappa, the uh, kind of uh, up-and-coming sax player uh, who we've uh, listened to before, uh, Ernie Watts. Well,
1: well, you and I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listeners have. We haven't listened yeah. to it. With we the haven't done it on the yeah.
0: podcast yet. Yeah. Uh, Curtis Lundy, uh, Antonio Hart, uh, Von Freeman, and uh, Mike Stern and Bob Mincer. Uh, so he's uh, kind of established himself, and he has a, a really nice sound and concept too. And uh, then we've got a, a female saxophonist, Cheryl Cassidy. And uh, she's played uh, in bands led by uh, Cyrus Chestnut, uh, Nicholas Payton, and uh, Jimmy Heath. So she's got an impressive uh, resume as well. And um, rounding out the ensemble, uh, Richard D. Johnson on piano, uh, bass Jeremiah Hunt, and uh, Michael Piole on drums. Hmm. And um, so uh, getting into these original tunes, I uh, starting out the recording uh a Cassidy tune called Cedar Grove and this is a tune that's composed over the uh, chord changes uh to the great pianist uh, Cedar Walton's Fantasy in D I think and, it's Cedar Groove Cedar Groove uh, Cedar Groove yeah 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 and uh so this is um it, it's composed over the chord changes for a Cedar Walton tune and right. uh it's got some really hard swinging A really nice kind of memorable uh, new melody that she gets uh, here too, and it gets off to a real swinging start. What's nice and shown here is established through the whole album is the uh, sexes are really feeding off from each other. And um, this is not a competition, but it's sort of a, a conversation that's bringing out the best in the other players. So uh, that mood is set right from uh, this first one. Uh, Number two is called uh, Bembe's Kids, and this is a Halim original. This one is uh, kind of really a complex melody tune, and it's uh, the first that kind of uh, brings in uh, a tune of uh, sub-Saharan West African uh, rhythms, and has some nice twists and surprises in the arrangement. And uh, the sax solo is followed by uh, some piano. That has some nice uh, cluster chord accompaniment and two-handed runs. And so this one is a fun tune. Uh, Track three is called The Mighty Mayfly of Truth. And this is a Ward original. It starts out with uh, some chiming piano chords uh, under the uh, developing sax lines. Uh, There's a really nice uh, three-part section playing in here. They've done these arrangements really well. It it sets up a really kind of warm sound. And then uh, I think it's Ward who breaks out into the first solo. You get that kind of uh, tart and passionate uh, alto sound that he has. Then all of the players solo on this one. The second solo is a bit more fluid and round toned. And then uh, after the third alto comes in, we get some exchanges and interplay between the saxes. So nice part writing, inspired playing here. Uh, Track four is a Cassidy original called Thoroughbred. This is uh, written as a new melody over the uh, chord changes to Benny Golson's Stablemates. And this gets a nice uh, kind of happy groove over these uh, open voiced chords. And the saxes come in swinging. Uh, Another nicely arranged section. Some uh, nice solos. I think the first solo is Cassidy here, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And then uh, maybe... uh, Next is Ward with that more of a tart sound. Um, but it's a nice uh, original uh, composition over these goals and chords here. Number five is uh, The Time Has Come. And this is uh, uh, the pianist, Richard Johnson's original composition. And uh, this is a pretty ballad. Again, very well arranged for the three altos. There's one sax solo here that's rather passionate. Uh, I think it might be uh, Ward here. Nice tune uh, composition and playing six is award composition john cotton a very nice bouncy rhythm section all the saxes join in and there's some trading of phrases between the saxes before a very rhythmic piano solo that builds with kind of some uh, gospel feel and then uh, a nice bluesy sax solo here comes out of the uh, changes punctuated by the uh, piano chords. Uh, so a uh, nice tune here. And another Johnson tune uh, finishes up this uh, recording here called uh, Last Minute. Uh, it's kind of a menacing crime movie theme opening. <laughs> uh, it was kind of fun and uh, a really uh, nice uh, sax melody arrangement on this too. And then we get uh, some uh, intense sax solos and uh, trading with each other that keeps the uh, flames burning more and more. And then the, the drum solo comes in as they bring back in the uh, uh, kind of hypnotic riff before the alto theme uh, returns. So this one I really enjoyed as you know a collaboration, a summit of sorts of alto players uh, that I didn't know, but who all have uh, you know a high level of talent you know, equal to you know lots of the uh, better known players. They just happen to be on the Chicago scene. And uh, what I like is uh, it's not just a blowing session. They've contributed uh, original tunes and worked out really good arrangements that show the strengths of each player. The intensity is high. They they feed off from each other. Yeah, you get some original music and with uh, three hot, really well-qualified uh, and inspiring sax players. And uh, so it's a little gem that might be overlooked. But uh, if you're a jazz sax fan, you definitely want to check this recording out.
1: Yeah, I think that's the the key point is if you're a jazz sax fan. Um I liked this. I thought it was really enjoyable, but um I think I almost felt like listening to it that if you um if if you're really into the alto sax, you'd probably get a lot more out of it than I did. Um at you know, I thought it was good. Um but I don't really I didn't really know these players and really you know what to listen for. I heard it twice. If I hear it more times, I'll probably like uh um get more into it. But I'm going to say for like, you know, if, if you're a big fan of the saxophone, this is really more up your alley than, say, for the general listener. I thought it was good, though.
0: Yeah, I like to do this because, you know, um, what, well, you know, to draw an analogy with uh, classical music, when we were talking yeah. with uh, Daniel, um, in any era of um, music, and I think it's probably any style, uh, like uh, Daniel said, this we tend to re- Retain like three names or something. Yeah. This and, is
1: Daniel Bernhardson, the uh, Ranitsky scholar, just yeah. for listeners to And, yeah. you know,
0: so we remember um, Mozart and Haydn. Right. And then, uh, you know, we remember Beethoven and Brahms. Um, and we can only keep, you know, so much from, you know, each period when it gets condensed down to something. But especially in jazz, too, I think that happens. Um, and of course, there are players who are, you know, sort of the pioneers of a style or, um, you know, so we remember on saxophone, you know, Charlie Parker, and we remember, um, you know, John Coltrane, and on trumpet, we remember, you know, Louis Armstrong and Roy Eldridge and Dizzy Gillespie and Fats Navarro, Clifford Brown, and that's all, you know, these great players. But in between, in the cracks, there are all these other great uh, performers who just um, by uh, circumstances of time or, you know, maybe not being uh, the most inventive, uh, you know, just get forgotten through time. But some of my, my favorite players are sort of, you know, the lesser ones who I always come back to. Yeah, um, this happens to me in
1: classical music a lot, yeah. the lesser composers, you know, the ones who, you know, yeah. In the major. my favorites, my my favorites are like the really famous ones. But still, you you feel like you're finding something new when you're kind of listening so to those. The um,
0: classic story in jazz is the tenor player uh, Tina Brooks, you know, who was uh, featured on, um, I think, uh, you know, several Freddie Hubbard recordings, and then, uh, you know, he had his his own albums, and then um, those were shelved by Blue Note for some unknown reason. Uh, but we're talking like. 60 to 62, when you have all these other monster tenor players uh, out there. And, uh, you know, there's there probably only so much music they could get out and market at the time. And uh, he became, you know, his music got kind of shelved, and he never uh, got the recognition or uh, financial um, uh, payback for it. And he, he uh, you know, had a sort of sad demise. And then, his recordings were actually i believe released first in japan and then uh the world came to know oh how do we miss this uh great you know player but uh, unfortunately uh he was no longer uh, in the world to uh you know uh, be able to benefit from that later recognition and i still think uh his yeah. recordings and compositions are really great and there's other uh you know sort of forgotten trumpet players uh, tony forcella Richard Williams, uh, so many, so many. And so what I, when I listen to uh, music and art, pick something for this, uh, for our, you know, program, I, I don't want to just focus on the things that anyone can find anywhere. Uh, I want to hear something that uh, slips through the cracks or is from a a smaller scene and, uh, you know, give some voice to, uh, you know, players out there who are just as good as uh, players anywhere else, but uh, maybe not get a chance to break through and uh, get people to listen to them.
1: Yeah, that story you told reminds me of a scene in Woody Allen's movie, Love and Death, where uh, the dead Woody Allen character comes back to for one last visit to Diane Keaton, and she realizes he's dead, and she tells him, I've never loved any other man but you. And when Helen replies, "Well, that's nice to know, but I'm dead now." <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's it's nice to get the recognition when you're alive. You know? Indeed, I mean it's good. I guess later is fine. I mean the family gets some sort of uh, yeah something out of that. But uh, yeah, I think I think I'd rather be. You know, there's, there's all this idea that oh, after I'm dead, I'll be famous. Well, it's not really gonna help you live a good life, is it? I no. think I'd rather be famous when I'm alive, and then when I die, I could be forgotten. You know, because I, <laughs> you know, I think I would prefer that as as opposed to being Mozart, you know, dead at 37 yet immortal. You know,
0: yeah. I'd rather get paid yeah. up front. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Let your still, ancestors, we're um, still waiting for really... these checks to come in for the podcast. By yeah. the way. Yeah. So. <laughs> um yeah we well, should it just set, started you know we should, understand, set, but, uh, should set up that patreon account right yeah, now
1: we right uh before we uh yeah before before we're uh <laughs> before we're just <laughs> a memory people
0: yeah.
1: all right we let's promise
0: the jokes will get better if you start setting the checks so. yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> well um the third uh, and final jazz recording, uh, well, we're a sucker for organ uh, we are. music and jazz. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, if you haven't checked out um, the Mike LaDonna interview, uh, interview one, uh, you should go back and check that out because It's All Your Fault is an awesome recording. And uh, that interview just doesn't have enough downloads. Uh, I don't know what's wrong. Yeah, it's really odd. People didn't
1: yeah. uh, pick up on it. I, th- I would have thought he would. he's probably the biggest name person we talked
0: to. Yeah. And, uh, he's a you know, monster player. Kind of I mean, surprised that, he, he is, uh, yeah. uh, he is one of the, you know, few guys who has a complete mastery of jazz piano and jazz organ with an individual voice on both of those. And that's just a smoking recording. And he's a really uh,
1: interesting guy as well. Yeah.
0: Interesting guy. He's got a lot to say and, uh, he's a real swing, uh, and groove proponent. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that, uh, uh, interview you got to go hear that and uh, check out that album album too it's really good yeah it's really good um but uh this came up and actually i missed this and i don't know how i missed it because i usually uh the sites i look at that have the new recordings coming out always have these ubuntu ones but uh mike you said how about this (laughs) yeah we actually picked
1: i actually picked this up from the jazz wise the british jazz wise jazz magazine jazz wise is uh best jazz albums of the year so far. And this was on it. It's like, oh, how do yeah. we miss
0: this? <laughs> yeah. So, so this is uh, the British uh, jazz guitarist. Oh, of course he's British because he has a name like Nigel. And uh, I don't think I've ever met an American with the name Nigel. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Nigel Price. Uh, and uh, so uh, he has a, a long career uh, and he played with uh, various artists uh, reggae, and funk bands uh, in the UK uh, before uh, turning his attention to jazz. And his early influences were uh, Wes Montgomery, Joe Pass, uh, and then uh, more progressive things, John McLaughlin, with, of course, the uh, his Mahavishnu Orchestra. And uh, he played lots of uh, gigs and uh, sitting with the players of the time uh, over the years and now he's played on more than 50 albums he's got five as a leader on his own and uh, he uh, also played with the uh, uh, British uh, organist James Taylor's band for three years so I imagine that's where he got uh, this uh, idea for the organ concept from and um, so on this album here is uh, the Nigel Price organ trio And it's called uh, Wes Reimagined uh, Speaking of the great jazz guitarist Wes Montgomery uh, And this is on Ubuntu Records And uh, Nigel Price is a regular performer At London's Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club He's played there over 500 times wow. That's a lot of performances uh, If I was in London I'd go see that, yeah
1: Before you, because maybe you could explain this to me. This is this group is called the Nigel Price Organ Trio, and um, it seems like when they mention when there's an organ in the trio, they need to uh, mention in the title of the group that there's an there's an organ. But uh, the the person who's kind of in charge is the guitarist, Nigel Price. It always confuses me. Yeah, it's a little bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) you know. Um, I I imagine that the person who's named is the organist, but you would think so. Uh, an yeah, organ is case, uh, Russ Stanley. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Stanley uh, uh, but it's not the Russ organist.
0: Stanley organ trio. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so kinda... he's
1: the leader, but I I feel like they should just leave organ out of the, out of the name. Yeah. Um, I, I guess know. he just
0: wants to emphasize that. This should be right. like the, the, the Nigel price trio, including organ. Well, that doesn't quite awful. sound so good. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah sounds good. Yeah. Well, yeah. uh, anyway, uh, we've also got uh uh joe barford on drums and it's actually not a trio for uh most of uh, the album because we've got uh saxophonist uh Vasily zinopoulos and uh tony kofi uh and i don't know either of these players there's a couple of tracks where they play together and then there's a couple of tracks uh where there's one Saxon I don't know who it is so I'll just leave that out uh, you can investigate if you want to and the percussion is supplied by someone called Snowboy uh, and I don't know who that is either but kind of, either he has a very light complexion or uh, I don't know what the deal is but uh, um,
1: I, I want to say about Vasilis Xenopoulos oh, to have a last name that started with X yeah. would be the coolest thing ever
0: yeah. yeah. And you can maybe like have a first name like Xavier Zinopoulos. Then you could just yeah, have right. the initials XX. Oh, that would be yeah. cool. Um, uh, anyway, uh, the and furthermore, uh, not only is it not just a trio because of these uh, sax editions, there's also a, a string quartet uh, incorporated in here. Um, so, well, I'll, t- I'll talk more about that as we go along. But uh, the basic format here is, uh, as it's a kind of tribute to Wes Montgomery, we've got uh, nine Montgomery compositions, uh, and then one jazz standard, uh, I've grown accustomed, accustomed to her face. Uh, and then uh, they're not played uh, in the original Montgomery sort of versions, but uh kind of uh, refreshed uh, in a way, mainly by uh, giving a different or updated kind of groove or rhythmic treatment uh, to the tunes with a new arrangement. And so that's sort of the approach uh, that's taken, maybe a a modernized rhythmic uh, treatment uh, for the Montgomery tunes uh, with a new setting. So uh, we begin with uh, Kariba, That ends in an exclamation point uh, here. And this is given a new shuffle treatment. Uh, The guitar and sax uh, play the melody in unison, and that's sort of the pattern that's uh, used in the arrangements on the album, and it works really well. Uh, And it's over this sort of hypnotic organ offbeat rhythmic backing. Uh, It's really cool. Uh, It it kind of sounds like a chicken clucking. It's like... Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. you notice that too, yeah. (laughs) That happens all the way through. Well, you kind of
1: become an expert at at identifying like barnyard animal sounds when you listen to classical music a lot. Yeah, yeah. Because they Um, include them a lot
0: lot of pieces. And then uh, this tune is the first of the three that has the string arrangement. And the arrangement is kind of unique and it fills out in some spots. uh, And there's... uh, after the uh, melody and all these things come in, there's a kind of bluesy sax solo first, uh, and then guitar, Price's uh, guitar, and then another, the other sax, and back to the groovy melody, and then the saxist trade uh, solo phrases over the vamp, uh, and the strings layer over that. It's kind of a nice, uh, it's a nice tune to start with. I like the rhythmic thing, although I can do without the strings. Uh,
1: Were the strings on this one?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I complained here.
1: about them later here, but yeah. I noticed so this is the first
0: one. place they come in. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, going on uh, number two, uh, Layla, uh, the drum toms get things started uh, swinging fast here. And then we we uh, come back to the same idea with this uh, sax and guitar playing the melody in unison. And then the organ sort of interjecting these kind of punctuations for accompaniment. The organ takes the first solo here. It's really nice uh, articulation and building lines in the solo. Then I uh, get a sax solo that uh, keeps the lines fast and bluesy. Uh, Price takes over with the guitar solo. He's got some speedy lines, uh, really uh, impressive technical figures. And uh, he includes some kind of chord soloing at the end. And then everyone comes back in uh, and then gives a big break for the drums and one more time around the melody. And uh, there's a nice kind of uh, Leslie uh, effect and organ swell at the end. This one is a really kind of upbeat tune. It's going to put you in a good mood. I said cheerful for this one.
2: Uh, yeah, it's very cheerful.
0: cheerful. Yeah. Um, track three is called Jingles, and we get a Latin beat to get things going here. settles yeah, the, into a nice. The first groove.
1: of many on
0: this album, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah, they they uh, kind of update a lot of these Montgomery tunes with a Latin kind of groove. Uh, again, guitar and sax unison thing with the uh, organ backing for the melody, and um, uh, Price takes his first solo uh, here. He's uh, fluid again, and he brings in some really kind of uh, Montgomery-esque figures into his solo uh, more than before until uh, this point. Then Stanley's up on the organ, and he had some kind of cool harmonic tension to build things up. Uh, we get some sax, keeping it funky. And before we head back to the tune, and then uh, we get a, a nice Latin outro with a whistle Uh, and a percussion jam uh, before they close out the last phrase. So I'll kind of milk the uh, Latin effect on this one. Uh, Track four, Far West. No T there, Uh, as in just West. Uh, And it's a nice waltz tempo with drum brushes that comes uh, dancing in for this tune. Again, sax and guitar double the melody. And the sax takes the first solo. And then we've got uh, Price on guitar. And uh, I like his playing a lot here. He leaves just enough space in between phrases, and there's a great uh, descending line uh, to the end of the solo here. Uh, The organ is up next and uh, has some nice intense phrases in the solo. This is a fun tune with an unexpected uh, minor chord change at the end of the happy melody. Uh, you know, it's part of the composition, but that gives a kind of surprise finish to all of the solos, and then at the end of the tune, because it's a rather kind of happy-sounding melody, but the final chord is the is the minor, uh, so it sort of you know keeps you on the edge uh, and makes a nice so- a solo transition. Uh, track five is called "So Do It!" Exclamation point. Uh, this is a kind of a slinky cha-cha dance that uh, brings the strings back. Um, yeah, the strings. This is where I, yeah, I first yeah. noticed them, in fact. Yeah, because they are sparse, mm. but I think largely unnecessary. Um, yeah, they kind of, I felt that they were intrusive on yeah.
1: this and uh, one or two other tracks. I didn't actually didn't notice them on Kadiba, but now that you mentioned it, I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to yeah. start noticing it there, too.
0: Um, Price starts his solo on this one uh very relaxed and builds up. There's some really nice double stops. Then he builds into even bigger chords, uh, really tasty playing. And uh, then the sax solo comes in and then uh, Price transitions into accompanying. And this is, you know, I was listening to the solo, but I really like his nice tight kind of chord chops in the background. And uh, those are really cool. And at the end of the tune is a really kind of West Montgomery uh fitting ending uh to end this one up so uh yeah a little bit uh too much cheese on the taco with the uh the uh <laughs> strings here but that's so, a good yeah. way to put it <laughs> it's kind of fun um yeah track six uh moving along uh this one's got a really funky beat a really cool choppy organ chords here and the guitar I scratches behind them like that yeah. uh, it really gets it going um sax and guitar uh, come in And then it's really got kind of a gospel thing going on there. Uh, But this tune has a really kind of twisted chord change and break before the last phrase that comes back. And that's the hook to this tune, Uh, nice Montgomery composition. Uh, Price plays a really tasty and bluesy solo on this tune. Uh, There's a saxo and then a really funky organ that gets up high. He pulls out some different stops finally uh, on this one, uh, and he's got some choppy chords and then some uh, of that technique where the uh, you know the right hand or even if they cross over with the left hand holds those high notes. And then uh, you get some kind of left hand uh, lower uh, interesting figures going on. And then he gives us finally get some of that nice Leslie uh, effect that we've been waiting for, because uh, until now he's been sort of straight toned on the stops. And so that's kind of satisfying. And then everyone sort of jams out a bit on the ending. And it ends with a nice organ rip uh, at the end of the tune.
1: We love those Leslie effects. Oh, yeah. That's why we listen to these records.
0: Organs. And uh, seven, Monk's Shop. This is another Latin beat tune, uh, but the beat drops out uh, for the first parts of the guitar and sax phrases, and it kind of sets the things in motion. Uh, The sax takes the first soul and keeps the spirits high. And then... uh, Price includes lots of kind of bouncy phrases and repeated notes that makes his uh, short solo rhythmically exciting. Uh, The organ solo goes into a breakdown of uh, accented chords, uh, and then there's some drum soloing between the phrases. And we're back to the top of the melody. It's a kind of cool Latin arrangement. Number eight is uh, called Road Song. Uh, This is a classic Montgomery tune. This was also recorded on the uh, Christian McBride uh, big band album for Jimmy West and Oliver uh, Mm -hmm. from last year. So uh, you probably uh, know this tune. It's one of Montgomery's uh, more famous melodies. And what I like on this one, it's just the trio. So uh, organ, guitar, and drums. And that really uh, brings out the interplay uh, here, especially between the guitar and organ. It's really tight and uh, enjoyable. Price's solo here is really intense. He's got these really spring-loaded phrases that, that just wound up, and they release the tension in his fingers. I really like those, some really tight double stops uh, on his uh, solo phrases here. Uh, the organ solo starts out mellow, but it builds nicely, and then he switches into the higher register Uh And then the guitar and organ trade some speedy phrases and cool licks uh, before they restate the groovy melody. And then uh, when we get to the end, there's a nice uh, swell on Hmm. that last chord in the organ. Uh, So I really like this one. I imagine if you went to see uh, the organ trio live at Ronnie Scott's, this would be something like what you would get. And that would be a cool night. I could listen to a few hours of uh, just these three guys playing together. Um, really nice. Uh, nine, Twisted Blues, and this is a uh, another uh, Wes Montgomery uh, favorite composition. Starts out with a funky vamp, and sax is back and solo is first, and then the organ is next. He's got some kind of cool disconnected lines that leave you hanging uh, and pulling you back in until he uh, kind of builds the tension with that and becomes more bluesy and uh chordy then price takes over again and uh, he keeps it uh, rhythmic and bluesy and then uh, there's a little bit of a drum breakup before they hit the melody again and we end out uh curiously but uh this <laughs> is a real uh, departure yeah from with, what we've been hearing uh, with uh, ballad uh the jazz entered. Uh, i've grown accustomed to her face yeah this originally
1: was in uh, my fair lady it's a learner song yeah. yeah
0: and uh this one is uh the arrangement is interesting because um it's um extended and broken up with lots of uh, places for price to shine and he uses a different a sort of lighter guitar uh tone where you get some more uh kind of uh, uh how can i say uh the lightness, you can pick up on his articulation and what he's doing with his fingers uh, and hear more. Uh, so it's a gentle intro just on guitar uh, before the organ and drums come in softly. This is just a trio tune again, but then the strings come back in. Okay, it's a ballad. So the the strings are there, okay. Uh, and Price plays a really pretty solo uh, before the organ takes over. Uh, with his own tender solo. And then uh, comes in uh, later with a nice uh, Leslie effect, really nice kind of chord wash uh, with this Leslie speaker sort of uh, pouring it all over you. Uh, But then uh, Price comes back in with a melody and it's kind of interesting. There's very several sections where uh, the guitar is alone. And then sometimes the trio and strings come in you think he's going to end it but it it keeps going on uh and then they go through the melody again and then there's a really lovely uh, outro uh four price uh, just on guitar and he's got a lot of fluid lines uh with double stops and again the organ uh finish things out with some nice swells uh there so they really milk uh this uh, standard uh really well and uh, Price gets lots of uh, spots to shine with his ballad touch and uh, little subtleties. Um, So,
1: uh, overall... Sadly, though, there are schmaltzy strings on this piece. (laughs) It just kind of kills it, but the the performances are great. Yeah. It's that. It would have been better
0: without the strings, though. Yeah, that's what... My overall is a a very nice recording, and uh, I guess it's um, like a refreshing of Montgomery tunes. It's not a complete... Reinterpretation, but uh, it's mainly just uh, kind of uh, considering more modern rhythms and uh, new ideas in the grooves that could be uh, had with those that differ from the originals. But, you know, it makes them fresh and fun to hear again. Price's guitar work is awesome. And uh, Stanley's organ is really great too. It's a bit reserved. Uh, I'm waiting earlier, you know, after we listen to, uh, you know, Michael Adon's playing, which is always sort of, you know, uh, really intense and uh, right. using lots of different uh stop effects and things uh uh here Stanley is a bit more reserved but you know he does give us you know those uh kind of uh tight grooves and some Leslie uh you know when we're craving it. Uh I, I like he,
1: the, he he's not the star in this ensemble no no yeah. Nigel price.
2: Yeah
0: yeah but he does great and mm. you know he's handling the bass pedals and everything uh really nicely yeah. and the interplay is good. Uh, I like the arrangements uh, with the uh, single and double saxes too, but also uh, just the two trio tunes. uh, They have that extra space uh, and the interplay uh, with, uh, you know, just uh, the three players is really great. Uh, The only thing, yeah, the string arrangements, I'm not really sold on that. Uh, (laughs) You could erase those off from here and uh, I don't think it would lose anything. That kind of goes
1: up there for me with the jazz suite, you know, if there are strings yes. in it. Swing, now, swings. you know, if they're solo instruments, that's a different thing. i feel yeah. some in like Stefan Grappelli. But I mean, if it's a string ensemble and they're just playing these yeah, chords, or I don't know, that puts me off. Like
0: know. some, uh, there's a few uh, Cassandra Wilson albums that have like a cello, just a cello. That you would know, be okay. Or uh, Tom Harold uses a that sometimes. So, are yeah.
1: different, though, because they yeah. want atmosphere. And that it, it can help there, I yeah. think. But here, I don't, I don't really feel like you need yeah, it. You kinda...
0: um, but uh, other than mm. uh, the minor string, than that, yeah. string thing, yeah, I really like this recording. Uh, West Montgomery tunes are, you know, they're, they're all, I guess, uh, as the, uh, I read one description of this, and it said sort of uh, the track got twisted blues sort of describes all of Montgomery's sort of uh, compositions uh, as a whole. You know, they're blues based with lots of interesting detours and uh, things. And then they add to that with the possibility of uh, Latin rhythms and uh, other kind of arrangements. And uh, yeah, Price's, yeah, his guitar playing is uh, awesome. Yeah, I I, I enjoyed him this playing too. Yeah, I like Stanley's organ and uh, yeah, Barford's tight on the drums. The sax players are nice. I like the arrangements. Um, Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and uh, never can have too much organ. And this is a a fun uh, sort of exploration of uh, just Montgomery's tunes, and you're gonna have a good time if you listen to it. And I'm gonna you know keep my eye on uh, what Price does in this format it seems i i really think uh organ trio and organ jazz is uh, sort of the hot thing now uh so it's really something that draws us, us. Uh, yeah I, I,
1: and I'd, I'd like it to draw more listeners i rather like yeah, it.
0: yeah it's really cool yeah. um
2: mm.
1: because the uh the hammond b3 it's, it's just like a cool sound it's, it's something oh. You, you kind of think of um, well with organs you think of church in general but these kind of things you think of like funky church services and then they yeah, put yeah. it into like jazz and all those old rock and roll records and it's got this kind of like almost um, low down spiritual sort of uh, feeling to yeah. it it's kind of like combines like the spiritual and the gritty at the same time I really I really like it a lot I like you it a lot of that here. Yeah.
0: I like it when you know that well what did uh, Michael Don say when when you get that the exploding, you know, right. we get that sort of exploding, and then, the, yeah. the, you know, the the different sort of stop sounds you can get on it. Uh, it, it gives a lot of possibilities, I think, um, for you know emotional sort of uh, development. Uh, so
1: yeah, we haven't mentioned this in a while, but we, you know, we we because you know we talked to Michael LaDonna, We liked his album so much, but there was an earlier album, the uh, Delvon Lamar oh, record, yeah, yeah. that I want to kind of make sure that we promote too, because I liked it a lot. And I thought it was a real, uh, they're, they're from Seattle, I think. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, uh
1: and they, yeah, that was a really exciting record. I liked that too. And I want people to check that out as well.
0: That's a really good one. I think that yeah. has a lot of a appeal to, you know, really funky. Sort of, I thought um, a lot of
1: good funky grooves,
0: you know, people who like sort of jam music yeah. and groove music. Uh, he, he pulls that side in, you know, with nice jazzy, uh, improvisations, but always over the, you know, most in the pocket tight grooves, uh, too. So, uh, yeah. very attractive stuff. Uh, yeah. That, that that's was what I'm going to mention because he's yeah. not
1: as well known, but I think that's yeah. v- well worth your time to listen you to. Check I those out. great.
0: Yeah. All right. Yeah.
1: And there we go. This is episode go.
0: 24. It was episode 24 mm. of adult music. Um, yeah. Lots of good stuff to listen to here. So be sure to uh, check out uh, this listening link for each tune or catch all of the tunes together on the podcast playlist on Deezer where you can listen to everything all in one click. One after the other. That's, I don't know, six or seven hours worth of music there. Um, It's a lot of music. The the Caroline Shore
1: records were both very short, mm -hmm. so it's kind of hard to... Yeah, you know, maybe together they make like one album, I think.
0: Yeah, right. one album, one together, is sort of mm. in that vein. So right. that's it. If you haven't uh, checked out the Brunitsky interview, uh, go check that out. Or for more organ insight, please do check out the Michael Adon interview we did back a while. And yeah. uh, as we said at the beginning, uh, please do like, or follow us on whatever platform you're listening to. Send us a uh, comment at adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, if you took a few minutes to write a review, give us a ranking. That's going to help us uh, get noticed in the browsing category recommendations, which will help us grow the audience. And uh, we welcome all new listeners from around the globe. We're expanding our audience. We've got uh, how many was it? Twelve hundred? No, twenty-one hundred. Twenty-one hundred downloads yeah. this week. So uh, we know you're out there. We'd like to hear from you. Uh, send us some feedback. Send us your comments. Yeah, and thank
1: uh, you for listening
0: to. Thank you it's for really, listening. Uh,
1: nice to think that uh, there there are people interested in what we've got to say about music. Because certainly, where we live in Japan, there are many. <laughs>
0: Not too many, but uh, we know you're yeah, out there.
1: We we've ruined many parties by uh, talking about music and <laughs> yeah. you know, going into a corner together and not not uh, socializing with anyone. So you
0: know. we know adult minds listening to music are out there, and uh, yeah. so we appreciate you listening to and supporting our podcast. And we'll be back again next week with episode twenty five. Twenty five. That's silver another landmark. episode. The silver yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a good one. We've got some uh, interesting possibilities there, and um, so we're looking forward to that.
1: How does that work? Your silver anniversary is the twenty fifth, and the fiftieth is what?
0: Is gold? Is it gold? I don't
1: know. Maybe I know seventy five is diamond, and then what if you get to? I guess no one gets to a hundred. No, no. Yeah, I get. I think. It's, I think fifty is a golden anniversary. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll have a hundred podcasts. No worry about that.
1: We'll get there, but I mean, I guess people who are married don't get there unless they're married when they're like seven years old or something. Maybe they yeah. can reach that. <laughs> not, in <laughs> anyway,
0: not in modern societies. Not in modern times, yeah. Yeah, probably not ancient ones either. Maybe in the days
1: of Methuselah, you know, they kind of— That's
0: right. Yeah. the pre pre-flood world uh people lived <laughs> hundreds of years yeah yeah i don't know but i think you could have multiple wives back then too so. yeah well who so who knows what's happening there yeah. we'll know. just stick with our one podcast for now i don't know
1: that's that's probably why they live so long
0: it could be yeah yeah there's something in that someone should do a thesis on that hmm well there you go okay. You're anyway. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see you next week on episode 25 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And keep listening. And we're sure to be back for some more uh, music. I actually have some more yeah. organ possibilities. Uh, we'll we hold you. off for a little while. Yeah, we'll have to see.
1: I think next week we're talking about Ranitsky. I think that's pretty much a given.
0: Yeah, we should do that one. Definitely next week. we'll do that
1: one. And then I don't know what else we'll have to see.
0: We'll see. You'll have to tune in to find out. So we'll see you again next time on Adult Music.